I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2 and 14, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall not commit adultery. And now from Matthew, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and... We ask that you would search our hearts, that you would expose, uh, that you would uncover, that you would apply your grace, that you would heal, because Lord, that's what we desperately need, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. We're now eight, seven weeks in, eight weeks, eight weeks into our series on the Ten Commandments, and if you've been tracking with us um, all along... Uh, We say every week that these 10 words are kind of a summary of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. And if you're looking for God's will for your life, let's begin with his commands. And these commands actually give us a beautiful vision of what life would be like if we lived rightly before God. We say, imagine a world in which uh, everyone treated each other with dignity. No one took anybody's life. No one took anything that didn't belong to them. There was no envy. There was no jealousy. Everyone regularly rested. And no one cheated on their spouse. It would be a beautiful place to live. And that's the kind of vision that God is holding forth for us in the ten words. And we've noticed that the ten words don't actually begin with a commandment. They begin with a declaration. And that is a declaration of God's love and his grace for his people. Which means we should trust him when he tells us what life should be like. And this morning we come to a commandment that uh, is going to, again, make things a little bit uncomfortable for us. And that commandment is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now, (laughs) at first blush, this seems pretty straightforward. If you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. And you're like, got it. I'll try not to. And yet lots and lots of people do. And yes, people in church. So we shouldn't so quickly say, I got this, when maybe we don't. And just like the sixth commandment that we looked at last week, do not murder, this commandment has a breadth and a depth that actually goes wider and deeper in our lives than you first might think. Jesus actually says that looking lustfully at another person is a kind of adultery, adultery in the heart. So this command not only addresses what we do with our bodies, it actually addresses what we do with our hearts. But what if you're not married or not married anymore? If you're single, you might feel like this is another painful Sunday morning that highlights how you're missing out on God's best for your life, which is a thrilling, exciting, mind-blowing marriage. Right? Yeah. <laughs> by, by the way... <laughs> 
You can detect the cynicism in the room, right? Chris Rock, the comedian, once said, your choice in life is to either be single and lonely or married and bored. I do not share that cynicism, but it's out there, right? Okay, what, what about this? What if you're divorced? When you hear this command, you might feel like you're drowning in feelings of failure. Either your failure to remain faithful to your spouse or some perceived failure on your part that led to your spouse's unfaithfulness. Or how about this? What if you're someone who experiences same-sex attraction and you believe Jesus calls you to celibacy? You might be asking, what exactly am I supposed to do with a command like this? Now, I believe that when we understand this commandment, Within the storyline of all of scripture, we will discover that it speaks meaningfully to us, no matter what our circumstances. And it speaks meaningfully to us now, not just later. And it brings words of comfort. It brings words of forgiveness. And it brings words of hope. And this is what I want you to hang on to as we move through uh, this text and other texts this morning. The seventh commandment forbids adultery, but the commandment is about marriage. And marriage, ultimately, is about the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The seventh commandment forbids adultery, but the commandment is about marriage. And marriage, ultimately, is about the kingdom of God. And I want to unpack that in a little different order and say it in a little different way. But keep that in your mind in the background. And I want to begin with this. Behind the prohibition against adultery is a beautiful vision of marriage. Last week we mentioned that uh, each commandment, uh, if it were to be given today, would be given on an iPad, not on stone. It would be like a, you know, a hyperlink to other texts, anchor texts that support it and fill out a vision behind it. And so if you click on the hyperlink of the seventh commandment, the first place it would take you is to Genesis 1 and 2. God made humanity in his image. We talked a little bit about that last week. And when he made humanity in his image, he made them male and female. And he gave them a task. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And together, as co-laborers, exercise dominion. Which means, rule on my behalf over all my kingdom. But he also gave the man and woman to each other. And we get the beautiful depiction in Genesis chapter 2, where the words spoken over this moment of encounter between Adam and Eve is, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, this language of cleaving to another person, this is, that, that's actually language that describes binding yourself to someone else through a vow. That's how, it, that's how it's used in other places in the Pentateuch. It's language of devotion. It's language of loyalty. It's language of the covenant. You see, in marriage, you're glued together in a binding commitment by a permanent promise. Because marriage is covenantal. And it's a special kind of covenant. It's one that makes you one flesh with another person. And yes, that has sexual overtones, but it means more. It means a total sharing of life. Emotionally, financially, 
right? Physically. And all of this was before sin entered the scene of the human of human history. Marriage at its outset was a covenantal bond between one man and one woman that made them one flesh. And adultery is a violation of that one flesh union. Now, adultery isn't the only violation of this one flesh union, by the way. And this is really important to hear. If you are in an abusive marriage, physically, sexually, emotionally, that is not okay. And I beg you to reach out for help. We want to be a church that protects and defends and cares for victims. Because we believe that God's heart is large for those who suffer abuse. And he takes this kind of violation of a one flesh union with great seriousness. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to any of the pastors. You can reach out to any of the staff members. You can reach out to any of the elders. You can reach out to our diaconal mercy team. But would you please get help or let us help you get help? The one flesh union of marriage in God's design is about mutual self-giving and self-sacrificial love. And it has to be guarded and protected carefully. And that includes responsibilities of a whole community. You know, Lewis Smeads, the late Lewis Smeads in his book, Mere Morality, draws out an important question from the seventh commandment that I think is relevant to each of us. And that question is, what sort of person do you want to be? And he says there are covenant keepers and there are self-maximizers. And actually, both persons live inside each of us. A covenant keeper is one who is committed to keeping his or her promises. But a self-maximizer is always evaluating relationships and everything else in terms of how they benefit them. So married or unmarried, we are always growing towards becoming more and more one or the other. A self-maximizer might ask a question like this. Is, is my marriage really giving me everything that I need? And you can see why affairs are pretty attractive if you're self-maximizing. They offer love to a person who feels like their spouse's love has grown cold. They offer passion to a person who feels like their marriage has gone flat. They actually look very promising to people who feel robbed of the glittering promise of marriage and all the hype that surrounds it. The seventh commandment is actually a call for all of us to be covenant keepers. And so it's actually getting at more than the decisions that we make about sex. It's actually getting at our understanding of the meaning and purpose of life. You see, it's completely countercultural because our culture actually urges us To define our lives not in terms of our past commitments. It urges us to define our lives in terms of our present needs and our future possibilities. But when you take a marriage vow, you are promising your future self to someone else's future self. And let's be honest, that is completely terrifying. You have no control... Over this person that you're promising yourself to. 
No control over how they're going to act, how they're going to change, how they might end up hurting you or disappointing you. And you're promising, I'll love you when you hurt me. I'll love you when you disappoint me. I'll love you when you don't love me back. And you have no idea how you're going to feel on any given day. But you're promising, I'll love you when I'm tired. I'll love you when I'm upset. I'll love you when it feels like things are falling apart. That's scary stuff. But that's keeping covenant. But the beautiful thing is this. In marriage, someone else makes that promise to you. And that's really good news. See, in God's design, he intends for marriage to create a context of security that makes it safe to be who you really are. You don't have to hide. You don't have to cover up. You don't have to pretend anymore. The audition is over forever. You can be totally exposed and hear someone say, I love you. I accept you. I'm committed to helping you grow by God's grace. I will not run from you. I will not send you away. I will be with you and I'll be for you forever. And in God's design, this isn't a closed circuit of joy and delight just for the two. It's actually more like a fountain that is meant to overflow. You build something together. A family, a ministry, an open home for the lonely and the forgotten. Because the purpose of marriage is not simply your own happiness. It takes its place in a larger ecosystem. The safety and the joy of marriage as it's meant to be is intended to strengthen you and make you fruitful in your labors for bearing witness to the kingdom of God. Self-maximizing destroys all this. But covenant keeping secures it. Which is why covenant keeping is part of the beautiful vision of marriage that is behind the seventh commandment. Now here's the second thing we need to look at. Behind the prohibition of adultery is not only a beautiful vision of marriage. It's a beautiful vision of sex. Sex is a God invented way of saying to another person... I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. Sex is the sort of thing that fits the sort of thing marriage is or is supposed to be. It was meant for marriage and nowhere else. Outside of marriage, it doesn't fit. And this is a beautiful truth. It's not an ugly one. Now, we have, we have to be, be honest. This Im- immediately sounds implausible to our modern ears. Because we say, haven't we learned a lot about sexuality and our development? Haven't we moved past archaic restrictions? And let me let me just try to speak at that for just a moment and say a few things. We still have boundaries around sex. We all recoil at the thought of an adult having sex with a minor. We all line up to say, no, there needs to be consent. Even between two adults. And by the way, these two things are leftovers from the influence of Christianity in human history. If you go back and read the literature of the Greco-Roman world, take Kyle Harper's book, From Shame to Sin, you'll see that Christianity radically changed in a beautiful way ancient understandings of sexuality. We still have boundaries. And we can't get away from them. This was actually uh, humorously portrayed in an episode of Seinfeld years ago. Uh, Many of you may have seen this episode uh, where Jerry and Elaine are doing the bit about this and that. 
This refers to their friendship. That refers to the bedroom. And they're sitting down and having a conversation. They're like, this is great. What if we add that? And they're like, what? Why can't we add that? That has nothing to do with this. We can do that. And it's not going to influence or change this at all. And then Jerry says, you know, but there could be problems. They're like, yes, we can talk about that up front. Like normally with this, we don't call each other every day. And Elaine says, okay, after that, no calls the next day. No expectation. Great, great, great. This will just stay this, and that will be that. And then Jerry says, but you know, every time we hang out and do this, we go to our own apartment, and uh, we sleep in our own places. And then Elaine says, we can make a rule. When you do that, no sleepovers. Or no expectation that you have to sleep over. And they're like, great. And on and on and on it goes. But what you realize is you can't escape the need to place boundaries and make rules around that. Because something is distinct and different about that. Special that must be guarded and protected. And here's another thing. The sexual revolution actually has not been all that liberating. At least not according to many psychologists and cultural analysts who are tracking the loneliness and the depression and the feelings of worthlessness that are almost epidemic in modern society. There was an article that came out uh, in 2018, I think it was in September, it was in the New York Times. And uh, it was written by a woman named Courtney Sender. The title of the article was, He Asked Permission to Touch, But Not to Ghost. And it's very graphic, and it's incredibly heartbreaking. And it shows the longing in the human heart for covenant that protects and that binds. And it actually shows up that consent is not enough. It's like a fake covenant. You see, we're very confused. And we can't seem to decide, is sex nothing? Like, you, you just do it? for fun or with whoever you want. As Monica and friends said, it'll just be like racquetball, something you do with your friends. Or is sex everything? Like you're going to die without it. If you reach 35 and you haven't had sex, you just drop dead because the whole meaning and purpose of life has escaped you. Or if you bring discipline and restraint to the sexual table, In our modern ears, it's like you're squashing your authentic self. You see, we don't know how to handle sex because we actually don't know what it's for. So maybe it's it's worth giving the biblical view another listen. I was talking with someone the other day and they said, is there anything you can make that will last forever? The answer, of course, is a baby. (laughs) Sex is powerful. It can make humans. And that's actually one of its purposes, according to the biblical view, procreation. Uh, years ago, I had this conversation with a high school student. He wanted to have sex with his girlfriend, so his mom told him to talk to me. <laughs> and and uh, he thought his mom and the Christian view of sex was dumb. And he wanted to see if I had anything challenging for his brilliant 15-year-old intellect. Um, 
It was pretty obvious that he wasn't listening. So I just decided to say to him, I said, you know, you know, sex can make a baby, right? Sort of stared at me. And I said, you know, anything powerful enough to make another human being should probably be handled with great care, don't you think? See, the human making potential of sex is a sign of where sex fits in marriage. But sex isn't just about procreation. Sex is also pleasurable, and God meant it to be so. When you read Proverbs 5, or you read Song of Songs, there's language in there that can make a Hebrew scholar blush. But God's not blushing. He intended it. He wanted it this way in marriage. And and get this, the pleasure isn't simply animal-like or located in bodily erogenous zones. It's emotional and it's personal, which is another sign that sex fits within a whole life commitment. Which leads to the third thing and something I don't think we give enough attention to. And that is sex unites. It bonds. It's glue. And it binds not just bodies. It binds persons. Sex is a life-uniting event that fits into a life-uniting covenant. Another way to say it is, it's a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong, all of me, completely and permanently and exclusively to you. And that can't be said truthfully outside the permanent, exclusive, covenantal commitment of marriage. See, sex is meant to be covenantal. It's physically enacting the one flesh union of marriage. And covenant is the condition under which it was designed to flourish. Covenant provides the infrastructure of intimacy. It creates the context of, safe, context of safety and vulnerability. And we could even say it this way. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony. The Bible is full of those, by the way. Israel gathered to hear again the terms of the covenant, to remember the history of God's faithfulness and grace to them, to recommit themselves to him. And by the way, we have a covenant renewal ceremony here at Grace every single Sunday. It's called the Lord's Supper. It renews the covenant that we made with him at our baptism. We hear his words spoken. We remember the history Of his grace and faithfulness to us. We experience oneness with him at this table afresh. Sex is meant to be that to marriage. A physical enactment of the promise to renew and revitalize the oneness. Since we're on the topic, why don't we talk about premarital sex? Specifically. When you engage in sex without covenant, you're essentially saying to someone... I want to experience your body and your presently affirming emotions towards me. And I want you to experience mine. But you can't have all of me. And I don't want all of you. And we wonder why when these relationships end, that it hurts so much. I had a a Stanford student many years ago when I was doing campus ministry. And uh, he was not a Christian. And he told me after... Dealing with the fallout 
of numerous sexually involved relationships, it's like you're putting down roots that were never meant to be uprooted. If you use sex to say something it wasn't meant to say, it actually hurts. And if you can get to the place where it doesn't hurt anymore, it means your heart has grown calloused. And you have no idea what it means anymore. As one person put it, when you try to give just part of yourself in a desire to please yourself, you end up harming yourself. Your bonding apparatus gets damaged. You know, one thing that often comes up in these kind of discussions is, but you know what? We really love each other and we're going to get married. And I've heard this many times. No one buys a car without test driving it first. Especially if it's a car you plan on having for the rest of your life. Now, that sounds reasonable in a certain sense, doesn't it? But as one person put it, I want you to think for a moment about the assumptions you are making when you apply this to sex before marriage outside of covenant. First, you're assuming that your potential spouse is a machine. Like a car. Okay, we'll just let that sit for a second. Second, you are assuming... That one of the most important things about your relationship will be your sexual compatibility and performance. And that it either works or it doesn't right from the start. Not that it's something you grow into together within the bounds of total life commitment. And lastly, you're assuming that the other person is on a tryout. And so are you. You're off on the wrong foot from the outset, treating the other person like an object to meet your needs. What's that called? Self-maximizing instead of a person to be loved. And let me add this. There is no possible way you could test drive all the things that you need to test in order to be sure and to know, right, that this is going to work. Because the things that end up mattering most in marriage are things like, what's it like to raise a kid with severe and mental disabilities? How does it go when I lose my job and we have to move in with my parents? Or God forbid, one of my children gets cancer. You think you can test drive that? You think you can test drive that before marriage? See, as far as anything needs to be tested, it's character, not sexual performance. Because sex is something you will work on within the bounds of total commitment. That's what God meant it for. It's great. It's meant to be a physical expression of a whole life commitment. But it's one ingredient that's meant to be mixed in with all the others. Which means consent is not enough. You need covenant. Now look, every person in this room is sexually broken in a variety of ways. Some of us have had horrible things done to us. Some of us have done horrible things. But I want you to listen for a moment because I have some good news for you. There is forgiveness for our failures. If we have committed adultery, if we slept around a bunch, if we become addicted to porn, there may be a whole world of hurt to sort through in a whole bunch of relationships that may or may not heal anytime soon. But forgiveness with the Lord is yours in Jesus Christ. There's also change that is possible. It doesn't have to be this way forever. 
And I know you may have tried a thousand times to change and you just don't think you can. But change doesn't come simply from trying harder. It comes from having your heart captured by a greater love and a greater desire than those that consume you right now. And that leads to the last thing. Which is that marriage and sex actually belong to a much larger story. And it's the story of God's covenant love for his people. You know, in the Old Testament, one of uh, the, the favorite metaphors for the relationship between God and his people is marriage. And adultery becomes one of the most piercing images to describe our unfaithfulness to God. You can read about this in Genesis 3. You can read about this very graphically in Ezekiel 16. But here's the thing. God is a covenant keeper, even when we aren't. And this is dramatically portrayed in the book of Hosea, where God calls his prophet Hosea to go marry someone who is unfaithful over and over and over again. And the covenant is renewed and God says, I am telling you to do this so people can understand my love for my people. And the prophets describe the return of God to heal the world as a great wedding feast, like Isaiah 25. And it's like the ultimate covenant renewal ceremony of all time. And all of it reaches a crescendo with Jesus. Who establishes the renewed covenant in his blood, laying down his life for his beloved. You know, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. The marriage supper of the lamb. And if marriage is such a big deal, why didn't Jesus get married? Why did he stay single and celibate his whole life? Well, it's for one reason. Because the marriage that all marriages were designed to point to was his. And it awaits him at his return. The only marriage that we're talk, that's talked about in the Bible in heaven is the marriage between Jesus and his bride. And it is the consummation of God's kingdom. And one of the questions that every one of us has to ask is, am I willing to be the sort of person who lives with an eye on the kingdom of God? Live with a willingness to submit my desires to what I see ahead in the future that God has promised. That's a question anyone, no matter what our circumstances or challenges in life can ask. And we should all ask it. If you're single, will you live with an eye on the kingdom of God? Even if it means you might never get married here. If you're thinking about an affair... Because your marriage has grown stale or flat or loveless. Will you live with an eye on the kingdom of God? And continue to give yourself away in love. Even if it means that your marriage never grows into what you had hoped it would be. If you're gay and you are grieving the loss of the possibility of marriage. Or you're thinking about marrying someone of the same sex. Even though you think Jesus forbids that. Will you live with an eye on the kingdom of God and walk faithfully in a costly obedience? You see, no one really likes to be told what to do, but we always end up listening to someone. 
Whose voice are you going to listen to? Who do you trust to tell you what sex and marriage are for? Who has earned the right to bend your ear? The data scientists, the clinical psychologists, the social media influencers, the public health specialists. Here's why you should trust Jesus. Because he's a covenant keeper. And the sign of his covenant love is not a ring. It's a cross. Where he went to his death. To save us and cleanse us from our sin. And he says that trusting him will not lead to disappointment or missing out. But to fullness of life forever. And you know what that means? That means even the best marriage in the world is just a shadow of the things to come. It means even the best sex in the world will be forgettable. Compared to the intimacy we will know when we are reunited With the groom. It means even if you feel stuck in a loveless marriage, you won't be loveless forever. And even if you're single for all your life, there is a day coming when there will be real arms, real embrace, real kiss forever, like you could never possibly imagine. Every longing will be fulfilled, every desire will be satisfied. Every tear that you cry in this world. If you're following Jesus, you know what it's doing? It's carving out a bigger hole that God will one day fill. And your joy will be greater. See, like marriage, the gospel is about oneness with Jesus. Like marriage, the gospel is oriented to the kingdom of God. Like marriage, the gospel is a covenant. Jesus is a covenant keeper. And what kind of person do you want to be? See, refraining from adultery... Spiritual or otherwise, it's not just about keeping in covenant with your spouse or keeping promises that we make to one another. It's about faithfulness to your Savior who loved you and gave himself for you to bring his kingdom. And let me end with this. For any of us to walk with this kind of faithfulness, we actually need a community of covenant keepers around us. Because there are other covenants besides marriage. One of them is a membership covenant we take at this church. And it changes the way we look at everything. The marriage isn't just about my personal happiness and satisfaction in this closed circuit of joy and delight. But it's something that enables us together to move out to care for others who maybe don't have that gift. It means walking alongside each other and pointing each other to the hope that we have in the kingdom of God. So that we can keep an eye on our future. And not just focus on self-maximizing our present needs. See friends, the church has to be the kind of community where covenant keeping is prized and celebrated. And that together we keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who kept covenant for us. Let's pray together. God, we... Thank you that you are the covenant-keeping God and that we see in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of all your covenant promises. Lord, our hearts get battered by what happens to us, but also by what we do to ourselves. And we thank you that there is forgiveness for our past, there is help for our present, and that there is hope for our future in the gospel. So Lord, by your Spirit, work in us To be people who aren't about self-maximizing, but are about keeping covenant. Because you are the God who keeps covenant with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.